Chapter 11, The Procession of the Holy Ghost. Subordinationism, in its broader significance, had a double implication. First, it treated the Father as true God, but gave a lesser status to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, so that, while nominally Trinitarian, it was actually uncongenial to Trinitarianism. Second, as a result of this subordinationism, the revealed order, i.e. the revelation of God, the Word, and of His inscriptured Word, the Bible, took a lesser place to the natural Word of God, creation, and its order of power, the state. In subordinationism, the world became the domain of the state, and the element of revelation was seen as an addition to, rather than a necessary part, of man's life. In and through subordinationism, the messianic state was reintroducing its claims. The Augustinian development culminating in the Athanasian Creed was hostile to this subordinationism. It was a logical conclusion of this development to add to the Nicene Creed, the Philoquy, the clause concerning the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Son, as well as the Father, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. The phrase was lacking in earlier forms of the Creed, because the issue had not yet arisen, but the concept was thoroughly Nicene and Athanasian. The first known inclusion of the Philoquy is at the Council of Toledo in Spain of A.D. 589, which sealed the triumph of orthodoxy over Arianism in Spain. The clause had not appeared in the earlier creeds because the question had not come up. There was more general assent earlier to the procession of the Holy Ghost than later, when the Monophysite and Arian thinking had developed their implications more fully. In John 14, 16 through 18, 26, 27, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, is seen as coming from both the Father and the Son, and verse 18 is taken by commentators in this sense. This was also true in the early church. The sophistication of doubt came later. The Second Council of Toledo of 447 adopted the canon, The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Paraclete not begotten, but proceeding from the Father and the Son. But at this time, while asserted against the Arian beliefs, the words were not added to the creed. The Council of 589 met when King Ricarid became Orthodox and brought the Goths of Spain into Orthodoxy. He asked the council or synod to cite and anathematize the Arian heresies and to instruct the people. A general confession with 23 anathemas was formulated, and the philoquy added to the creed. The confession declared, 1. If anyone still holds the doctrine and communion of the Arians, let him be anathema. 2. If anyone does not confess that the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is begotten of the substance of the Father without beginning, is like to, and of one substance with the Father, let him be anathema. 3. If anyone does not believe that the Holy Ghost proceedeth from the Father and the Son, and is co-eternal with and like unto the Father and the Son, let him be anathema. 4. If anyone does not distinguish the persons in the Trinity, let him be anathema. 5. If anyone declares the Son and Spirit inferior to the Father, let him be anathema. 6. If anyone does not believe that Father, Son, and Spirit are of one substance, one omnipotence, and eternity, let him be anathema. 7. If anyone maintains that the Son is ignorant of anything, let him be anathema. 8. If anyone ascribes a beginning to the Son or Spirit, let him be anathema. 9. If anyone maintains that the Son, in his Godhead, was visible or capable of suffering, let him be anathema. 10. If anyone does not hold that the Holy Ghost, as the true Almighty God, as the Father and the Son, let him be anathema. 11. 
if anyone declares any other faith than that of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon to be the Catholic faith, let him be anathema. 12. If anyone separates the Father, Son, and Spirit in regard to glory and Godhead, let him be anathema. 13. If anyone believes that the Son and Spirit are not to be honored along with the Father, let him be anathema. 14. If anyone does not say, Gloria et honor patri et filio et spiritui sancto, let him be anathema. 15. If anyone defends or practices rebaptism, let him be anathema. 16. If anyone regards as good the abominable treaties which we composed in the twelfth year of Leo Vigold in order to mislead the Romans to the Arian heresy, let him be anathema. 17. If anyone does not condemn the council of Arminium with all his heart, let him be anathema. 18. We confess that we have been, with all our heart, etc., converted from the Arian heresy to the Catholic Church. The faith which our king has confessed before the synod, we also confess and teach to our congregations. If anyone does not hold this faith, let him be anathema. Maranatha. 1 Corinthians XVI 22. 19-22. If anyone rejects the faith of the synods of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chaldea, let him be anathema. 23. This condemnation of the Arian heresy we have subscribed with our own hands. The definition of those synods of Nicaea, etc., we have subscribed. They contain clearly the true doctrine of the Trinity and Incarnation. If anyone falsifies this holy doctrine and separates himself again from the Catholic communion which we have now obtained, he is guilty before God and the world. The reference in number 16 is to the heretical synod and Arian synod at Toledo in 581 or 582, summoned by Leovigold, king of the West Goths, an Arian who persecuted orthodoxy severely. This synod published a libellus to pervert the orthodox, and the bishops now anathematized their previous work. The same factor, condemnation of compulsion at a synod, is apparent in the condemnation in number 17. The Council of Arimenium, A.D. 359, met at Ariminium in Rumania. As long as the council was free, it was anti-Arian and orthodox. When its orthodoxy became apparent, force was applied to bring about an Arian conclusion. Trickery was used also, Valens inserting a declaration that the sun was not a creature like other creatures. The simple bishops read this as a denunciation of Arianism, when it actually was an assertion of the sun's creatureliness. Although unlike other creatures, Arminium was quickly and universally condemned. Those who call attention to the fact that the early councils were often called by a king or emperor fail to note this significant fact. The councils were free of dictation from the state, and a dictated council was a false council. The state could suggest or advise, but it could not command the council. As Schaff has pointed out, the philoquy was not an accidental addition, but a necessary development of the Orthodox faith the inevitable implication of Orthodox Christology. The double procession follows inevitably from the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son, and from the identity of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. It also forms a connecting link between the Trinity and Christology, and between Christology and Anthropology, by bringing the Holy Spirit and His work into more immediate connection with Christ, and through Him with the Church and the Believer. 
It was therefore not accidental that the same Augustine, who first taught clearly the double procession, developed also those profound views of sin and grace, which took permanent root in the West, but had no influence in the East. The Arian and generally heretical depreciation and subordination of Jesus Christ was the depreciation of revelation. To the degree that revelation was slighted, to that degree nature was asserted as the primary and basically self-sufficient order. God then became at best the first cause of nature, and Greek humanism was again triumphant. If nature is the basic and ultimate order, and Jesus is at best a product of nature, then the state is the true order of the world, and the saving order. The determination of history, moreover, passes from the trinity to the state, from eternity to time, from the supernatural to the natural. Subordinationist Christology was imperial Christology, and the imperial and later Caesaropapal doctrines of God saw God essentially as the author of a primary nature and a governing agency, the state. The sure voice of God was therefore the natural voice, the state. The work of grace and of revelation then became a kind of addition to nature. The scholastic concept of the donum superadentum was basically humanistic as well as non-biblical. The implications of scholasticism were thus subordinationist. The Augustinian doctrines of sin and grace rested in the biblical perspective and in an anti-subordinationist Christology and Trinitarianism. Yeomans pointed out that the philoquy is vitally connected with the advance of the Western Church towards a strong anthropology in connection with the doctrine of sin and grace, while the Eastern stopped in a weak Pelagian and synergistic view, crude and undeveloped. The procession only de patre per filium would put the church at arm's length, so to speak, from God, that is, beyond Christ, off at an extreme, or at one side of the kingdom of divine life, rather than in the center and bosom of that kingdom, where all things are hers. The philoquy puts the church, which is the temple and organ of the Holy Ghost, in the work of redemption, rather between the Father and the Son, partaking of their own fellowship according to the great intercessory prayer of Christ himself. It places the church in the meeting point, or the living circuit of the interplay, of grace and nature, of the divine and the human, thus giving scope for a strong doctrine of both nature and grace, and to a strong doctrine also of the church itself. Because of subordinationism, the development of the state was furthered in the East. Because of this anti-subordinationism, the development of the church became possible in the West, and both the high doctrine of the church of medieval Europe and the Reformation are products of this orthodox, anti-subordinationist Trinitarianism. The revealed order and the natural order are both directly and fully placed under the Trinity, Church and state are ministries of God, alike responsible to him whose decrees govern all things. The state is the ministry of justice, and the church is the ministry of the word and the sacraments. Both are alike ordained by the Trinity and are under the triune God. God and Christ are not maintaining competing orders, as subordinationism at best implied, with the order of God ostensibly the superior one. Rather, the triune God alone has universal jurisdiction to church and state in their respective areas of justice and the word and sacraments, God has given limited and subordinate authority. In all things they are subject to him, as Galatius 1, 492-496, Pope and Saint of Church of Rome declared to the Emperor. 
There are two powers who have sovereign rule over the world, the spiritual and the temporal authority. The sacred authority of the bishops is so much greater, as on the day of judgment they must render an account of the actions of kings. You know, magnanimous emperor, that your dignity surpasses that of other princes of the earth. Nevertheless, you are obliged to submit to the power of the ministers in sacred things, for it is to them you address yourself to know what are the sources of your safety, and the rules which you ought to follow in receiving the sacraments, and in disposing of religious things. The bishops persuade the people that God has given you a sovereign power over temporal things, and they cause them to submit to your laws. In return, you should obey with entire submission those who are destined to distribute to you the holy sacraments. If the faithful ought blindly to follow the orders of bishops who acquit themselves worthily in their functions, so much the more ought they to receive the decree of the pontiff of Rome, whom God has established as the first of his bishops, and whom the church has always recognized as its supreme chief. Here, in an early and faulty form, is the first major formulation of the concept of sphere sovereignty, or sphere law, which came into its own with Calvinism, and, in particular, with Abraham Kuyper. According to this concept, whose origins are in the Old Testament, God has established laws for various spheres of creation, and these law spheres are coordinate. Universal jurisdiction belongs to none of the many spheres, but to the triune God alone. Neither church, state, school, or any other sphere can claim universal jurisdiction validly, although the claims have been asserted, because sovereignty and dominion belong to God alone. Anti-subordinationism also made the Reformation doctrine of justification inevitable. Subordinationism gave primacy to nature, and hence to the natural ability of man. As a result, man becomes, in effect, his own savior, and grace is cooperating grace, not prevenient. If the Holy Ghost proceeds only from the Father, then the Holy Ghost, in a system which accords primacy to nature, becomes absorbed into nature. It becomes the act of nature, a charismatic act, but essentially a natural act, because the charism is either naturalized or made an appendage to nature. An example of this is the Russian saint, Saint Seraphim, ascetic, complative, and pneumatophore. St. Seraphim considered that the chief aim of a Christian is to acquire the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, in such thinking, is an asset which can be acquired by human activity in its natural involvement upward. As S. Volkova said, Man is the Logos of the world, and through him the world thinks and learns to know itself. The world works upward. Nature's upward reach is this religious faith. Man is a microcosm. He unites within himself the world. Humanity contains the image of the world. It is the icon of icons, for it is the image of God. The world of nature and God are virtually identified here. The image of the world and the image of God are correlative terms for Bulgakov. The work of the Holy Ghost is to further the work of man's ascent into deification. The Orthodox faith sees in the Church, that is, the concrete historical Church, the concentration of the theanthropic process. The state is man's true order, and the Church is the concentrated area in which the social process of deification, the theanthropic process, occurs, where humanity and the state ascend upwards. The Kenotic Christ of Eastern thought abandons his deity 
in the world in order to lead man by his union and example into the path of deification. The Russian liturgy declares of Christ, Thou hast become poor like us, and hast deified the earthly by thy union with it. These are natural conclusions from the naturalization of the Holy Ghost. Whereas the opposition of the Eastern Church to the Philoquy was originally primarily technical, i.e. the addition was made without a general council, and secondarily theological, it is now essentially theological. One Greek Orthodox theologian, Rose, states, It is not only technically illegal and illegitimate, but essentially wrong. Even as a theological opinion, it is vicious and inadmissible. This is strong language to call the Philoquy vicious. And why inadmissible? Messalora has told us, One thing is evident. There is but one principle or source in the Godhead. To this, the Western edition of the Philoquy is diametrically opposed. The belief in one single principle in the Godhead is demanded by a logical conception of the triune God. What is explicit and implicit in Messalora's statement? First, Messalora and the Greek Orthodox Church is formally Trinitarian, the triune God is affirmed formally. Second, it is held that there is but one principle or source in the Godhead, and also that one single principle in the Godhead is demanded by a logical conception of the triune God. Third, this one principle, this single principle, is identified with God the Father. Any logical conception of the triune God requires the inclusion of the entire Trinity in the activities of the Trinity. The economy of the Trinity may variously involve the three persons, but the great work of St. Augustine was to call attention to the equal work of the entire Trinity in creation, redemption, and providence. Functions and acts like the Theophanies in the Old Testament, which had been ascribed to the Son, were attributed by Augustine to the whole Trinity. De Trinitat L. 11, 9-18 by him, the numerical unity of the persons in respect of substance was unequivocally taught. To eliminate the Son from the procession of the Holy Ghost was not only biblically unsound, but philosophically Unitarian in implication. The kenosis of the Son was transferred from time, where it was wrongly asserted to eternity as well. God the Son was emptied of his Godhead, and God the Father made the single principle in the Godhead, to the exclusion of the Son. Fourth, the position subordinated also the Holy Ghost, since God was seen as the principal figure. In the Augustinian view, the act of procession involves, without subordination, all three persons of the Trinity. The Holy Ghost is economically given a different role than the Father and the Son, but the authority, sovereignty, power, and glory remain the same, in essence and in act. This anti-subordinationism of the West led to the Reformation. Augustine's Trinitarianism meant, as has been noted, his biblical view of grace and sin. Subordinationism made nature sovereign, but grace cannot be sovereign if nature is sovereign. The continual eruption of the doctrine of grace and of predestination in the Western Church was due to its Orthodox Trinitarianism. The faith having not been compromised at this crucial point in the liturgical confessions, the resistance to false doctrine would not die, and revolt erupted repeatedly in assertion of sovereign grace. In 1875, in Bonn, Germany, a synod or union conference of Old Catholic, Eastern, and Anglican churches met for five days beginning on August 12th. 
the meeting adopted certain resolutions whose basic purpose was to bring closer union between the various churches so that the element of peacemaking was a major factor in the deliberations rather than a forthright defense of the faith. The resolutions declared primary resolutions. 1. We agree together in receiving the ecumenical symbols and the doctrinal decisions of the ancient undivided church. 2. We agree together in acknowledging that the addition of the philoquy to the creed did not take place in an ecclesiastically regular manner. 3. We acknowledge on all sides the representation of the doctrine of the Holy Ghost as it is set forth by the fathers of the undivided church. 4. We reject every proposition and every method of expression in which in any way the acknowledgement of two principles of Archi and Ite in the Trinity may be contained. On the procession of the Holy Ghost. We accept the teaching of St. John of Damascus respecting the Holy Ghost as the same is expressed in the following paragraphs in the sense of the teaching of the ancient undivided church. 1. The Holy Ghost goes forth out of the Father as the beginning, the cause, the source of the Godhead. 2. The Holy Ghost goes not forth out of the Son, because there is in the Godhead but one beginning, one cause, through which all that is in the Godhead is produced. 3. The Holy Ghost goes forth out of the Father through the Son. 4. The Holy Ghost is the image of the Son, who is the image of the Father, going forth out of the Father, and resting in the Son, as force beaming forth from Him. 5. The Holy Ghost is the personal production out of the Father, belonging to the Son, but not out of the Son, because He is the Spirit of the mouth of the Godhead, which speaks forth the Word. 6. The Holy Ghost forms the mediation between the Father and the Son, and is bound together to the Father through the Son. Apart from its plain intent at compromise, this statement carries the amazing premise that only those symbols and doctrines are binding on the churches which were a product of the ancient undivided church, i.e. of the first six, or some would say seven, councils. This premise has been often asserted, but no brand of the church has ever regarded such a limitation as valid for itself. Moreover, the premise bypasses the authority of the scriptures in favor of the authority of the councils. This is implicit humanism in that it asserts that if an undivided council meets again, it can legitimately and without error define the faith. It is simply the substitution of conciliar infallibility for papal infallibility. In either case, it is human authority, not the word of God, which is determinative. Moreover, the third of the preliminary resolutions is nonsense. The Nicene Fathers did not give assent to any Arian subordinationism such as the Union Conference did, and Augustine certainly gave a strong testimony for the procession from the Son. What the Conference marked, rather than any significant contribution to doctrinal development, was doctrinal compromise and reviving Arianism. The subsequent history of the churches involved gives further evidence of their departure from orthodoxy. The reason for the cavalier compromise of the conference was due to its theological apostasy. In 1861, Stanley could write of the doctrine of double procession. It is an excellent specimen of the race of extinct controversies. After a thousand years of controversy, Stanley said, 
Now the whole question is laid completely to rest. In the West, it is never seriously discussed. In the East, it is remembered and will never perhaps be forgotten. But it is more as a point of honor than of faith. When a controversy is based on real and fundamental issues, the principles involved never become extinct, but the men who neglect those principles do. And this extinction faces many Western churches. In 1967, the Episcopal Church of the United States, in its trial liturgy for communion, turned its back on the West. The Nicene Creed was altered to conform to Eastern usage, we believe, and the procession of the Holy Spirit was limited to the Father the filiqui clause being dropped. From a personal, individual confession, the new liturgy went to a collective confession. The believer was no longer tied to the faith confessed. It was a collective affirmation rather than a personal witness made basic to the life of the person and the person's community of faith.